How are you doing today, sir? Good, Errol. How are you? Absolutely fantastic. Dude, I, I, I got to thank you because, I mean, this band has been a part of my life, my entire life, and now we get another chapter. We get, to, we get to experience it on a theater big screen. How many people or generations can say that? Yeah, we're very lucky, too, because uh, I was just told by the distributor that the theatrical window now has been extended through September. So how unusual is that? <laughs> wow. To, to go through this experience of bringing this to the theater, what was that like for you as a creative person? Because they always say anything that makes it to a movie theater, it takes a miracle. Yeah, this is, you know, I've had films that have come out and done the festival circuit, but this is really the first movie that I've done, you know, that's getting such a big theatrical release. So it's kind of it's kind of mind blowing, you know, to to do that. Um you know, I always think that I've made great movies my entire life. They've just come out at the wrong time, but maybe, <laughs> but maybe, maybe this one's hitting at the right moment. You know, and uh, it seems to be touching a chord. I, I sat through three screenings over the weekend on the opening nights here in New York, and people are having a really amazing emotional response to it. I mean, it's it's really connecting in in many ways that I hope. But you always hope. You know, you never really know. You know, you hope for certain things. Uh, and sometimes, you know, five out of eight of them work and, and some of them don't. But this one seems to be, uh, you know, having a, a great life so far. Seeing the documentary three times like that. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm blessed to go to many movie premieres. And but but each time that I see the same movie over and over again, I see something I didn't see the last time. I realize this came from you. But are you still seeing things that you've, you didn't take note of before? Yeah, I mean, uh, this is this is a strange one for me because I. I you know, in the editing of it, um, it was it was very peculiar. If I was looking at something, if I was, let's say I was working on a scene that was two minutes into the beginning of it, or if I was working on a scene that was 40 minutes into it, I would find myself, I'd watch the whole thing all the way through. <laughs> and I, I've never had that experience. You know, I've always like, okay, I'm going to be sort of, you know, focused just on this one little bit, get through it all. So, you know, there, there's something that's, that's, uh, you know, drawing me in. I don't, I don't know what it is. I mean, I, I, it's, you know, I, I think the best kind of art functions on that, you know, in some sort of abstract level, you know, mm -hmm. music or whatever it is. So, you know, I, you know, seeing it with the audience, you know, I definitely saw things that I hadn't seen that surprised me. You know, I, I feel different timing sort of things that I might've done a little bit differently, but um, you know, I, I, I just sort of get assumed into it, which is, which is quite fascinating. Uh, and I usually hate watching my films with an audience. Absolutely <laughs> hate it. Uh, I typically, you know, wherever it is, whatever theater, you know, where it's playing, um, I usually go in and I watch the first 10 minutes, 15 minutes, see how the audience is yep. responding, but mainly to check the volume. <laughs> oh my that's that's, so that's like my big thing, checking the volume. And then I'll leave for the middle chunk and then I'll typically come back for the last 20 minutes or 30 minutes of it. Uh, but it's strange. I watch this one all the way through again all wow. weekend i can still relate with that with it when it comes to the volume because being a part of a movie promotions company i mean we go into that theater long before people get there test the sound make sure the picture is focused i mean we it has to be perfect because there needs to be an experience yeah i think and, and especially uh you know with some of the music in this film especially mm -hmm. shine on you crazy diamond you know there's moments where you know, the sound ramps up and, you know, the hairs all over your body just, you know, <laughs> just get electrified. And so, you know, and it's, it's, 
amazing. So it's it's got to have that kind of presence in the in the sound. And I have to tell the theaters, I, I have to keep telling them, don't go go by the loudest volume of the music to set your levels, yeah. you know, because then all the dialogue's a little bit low. Yep. I keep telling them that's got to be peaking. That's you know that's got to really just hit you know, in terms of that. Uh, but we were lucky, we, you know, everyone's been really supportive. So we were able to get, you know, the master quality audio. So it's, it's, it sounds great. It sounds great. It looks great. To get this, this close to Pink Floyd. I mean, I've been with Nick Mason. What a great person when it comes to, you know, sharing the story and the journey, but you get so close and you're not afraid to share it with us. That's the thing that I love about this. Yeah. You know, I'd d- done this film on storm where I interviewed, Nick and I interviewed David Gilmore. Yes. Uh, and so, and you know, in that film, I interviewed Robert Plant. I interviewed, you know, Steve Miller, all these different musicians. Uh, but yeah, I still, I still have that moment of going like, Hey, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm sitting, you know, you know, when we were, when we were interviewing Roger, I was like, well, Hey, wait, you know, and, and uh, I saw the wall twice in 1980, you know, you know, there's a bit of that like complete wonder and disconnect. Um, but you know, it's it's. I think one of the fortunate things of, of of my filmmaking practice, which is fairly recent, is that you know music has come back into mm-hmm. my life in a big way, and the two things have dovetailed. You know, I started off being a musician, loving music, and then got into film, and I'm just fortunate that they're both dovetailing now. Uh, but absolutely, you know, there's I, when I interviewed David Gilmore for my film on Storm, I was packing up all my gear. And he picked up an acoustic guitar and started playing oh summer, summertime, like a foot away from me. And I could have fainted maybe, but you know, I tried to keep my cool. Uh, but you know, all really great. You know, it was my idea to ask Roger to recite the lyrics to Shine On. Uh, and he was just, yeah, absolutely. You know, so they were all really generous and forthcoming and heartfelt. Uh, I think maybe, you know, thinking about their friend, you know, and, and also having Storm as a presence in the interviews. I realize that many people my age are going to take this as, oh, my God, he's speaking the language of, of the life that I have lived. But there's a huge part of this that tells me that you're also reaching to 30 and 40 year olds about 25 years from now, that that you, you have captured this moment in history and said, here, take this and learn from it. I think so. I mean, I, or I hope so, rather, I should say. Uh, I, in one of the screenings uh, over the weekend, there was a father with two daughters, I want to say. And I want to say they were maybe late teens, early 20s. And the the daughter that was sitting closest to my wife and I was singing along to yeah. every single song. <laughs> Raised her hand for the first question. Uh, and I was kind of like, wow, this is great. You know, it's really, really great. And, you know, that that was part of my reasoning for including Andrew Van Wingarden from MGMT and, and uh, you know, Cedric from the Mars Volta. I was at one point I was trying to get Chris Cornell oh, in wow. the film, you know, because I think that, you know, uh, there's so many musicians of now, like you're saying, the current generation uh, that really love Sid's music. And so I also want to make those connect those kind of dots. Right. And Pink Floyd's been able to do that. Pink Floyd's been one of the bands that have been able to jump generation from generation to generation, you know, so I'm hoping people will get curious about Sid's music and, you know, and, and see where the, the genesis of the band was and, uh, you know, and think about, you know, how, how bands go and how, how life 
follows these right. these strange paths. Right. We live in such a faceless generation of music, and the thing is, is that I love the fact that you're putting the focus on Sid Barrett because a lot of people don't know Sid. They don't know. They 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 know of everybody else, but they don't know Sid. Yeah, it's it's you know I'm not one of those Pink Floyd fans that said you know, say, I like this era, I like this era, yeah, I like yeah. this era. I think one of the fascinating things is how the band sort of went through this arc of, you know, of creativity. Uh, but, you know, yeah, it's Sid named the band Pink Floyd, you know? <laughs> you know, the story is, you know, they were doing a gig. I think they were gigging as the T set at that time. And another band showed up with the same name, the T set. So oh. Sid just said, oh, we're, we're called the Pink Floyd Sound. You know, he just, you know, and he combined these two blues players' names. Uh, and he wrote the first two hit songs. I mean, he wrote Arnold Lane, he wrote See Emily Play, which is kind of, you know, which both of them charted uh, and really started the band. You know, we wouldn't have Pink Floyd. Roger says this, uh, I think, very early on in the movie. He said, you know, I wouldn't be here without Sid mm-hmm. uh, because I do think he his creativity uh, took them from being, you know, a straight ahead kind of R&B band uh, and then really push them into a different realm. I mean, even the first R&B songs that have just finally come out on the early years box set, uh, I'm a King B and Remember Me. I mean, they're very, they're kind of peculiar already. <laughs> so to say the least. So he was already changing, you know, where they would go. And then I think the minute that they're in, you know, the London underground doing these multimedia shows and, you know, Pink Floyd, they're doing these big improvisational jams uh, that really shapes, you know, their identity. As legendary as Pete Townsend is, there, there were many times that I felt like that he was just as much a fan as he was a student. He learned from this band. Yeah, Pete, I mean, I, uh, I love Pete Townsend, who was, you know, big, big band for me. And Pete was one of my guitar heroes. I, I didn't, I neg- neglected to tell him that at the moment, <laughs> that was one of those fan moments. But, um, you know, it, it was amazing because he told my producer, he said, I have to be interviewed in this. And he was, you know, uh, talking about seeing Sid performing live. And I, you know, I started thinking about, you know, the who and, and thinking like, oh yeah, Pete came out of art school. And, yeah. you know, the auto-destructive stuff with smashing up the gear and the noise, uh, you know, and then also even after, you know, the drugs that he was one of the early musicians to turn to Eastern religion and gurus, you know, following a guru. So there was all these weird connections, I think, between Pete and Sid um, that were that were kind of amazing. And, and I hadn't really seen them. But once again, I think Sid was like kind of the epicenter in some ways for many of, you know, Bowie and all these people. Um, so that, that was really great to have him in the film. Do you think most fans are going to be able to easily digest why there was an exit from the band? Because, I mean, we all have our own interpretations. We've all read our rock magazines and, and, the, and the authors and things like that have, you know, put their words out there. But this, this is authentic, authentic. I hope that people, you know, come away with knowing are feeling like, oh yeah, there's not really an answer. Yeah. You know, we don't really know. Uh, because I think, you know, in this, it's it's funny because I told Storm this once. I said, Storm, I was in bands in my twenties. I kicked out people all the time. <laughs> but I think, you know, you know, it, it's only in hindsight we go like, wow, that was Pink Floyd, right? That was like, uh, you know, uh, but when you think back to that moment, they were all in their early twenties. He didn't really want to be in the band anymore. They didn't know how to kick him out because he was the front person. Yeah. He was the singer songwriter. I mean, 
that's just insane. Like if you go like, oh, we're going to kick him out. So they kind of just gently just nudge him, you know, off to the side. Um, so it's an interesting story in terms of that. But I, I you know, I think, you know, like I said, uh, you know, this idea of choosing paths in your life that, that, you know, he was a painter first, mm -hmm. you know, he was in art school and he was a painter. And it just so happens his band takes off and, you know, uh, how does your life go? How do you know, what are the different twists and turns of those things? And what are the, the, you know, consequences, good and bad from those choices? And I think that's the universal part of the story. Did Sid stay with his painting? And the reason why I bring that up is because I had one bad show in New Orleans and I've never put a brush on a canvas ever again. I did. Did he continue going? He, when he went back to Cambridge, uh, he started painting again. Oh. And, uh, you know, the story was that he would take a photograph. He would often drive to, you know, a very pastoral place. Um, and he would take a picture and then he would go home and he'd make a painting based on the picture. Yeah. He would take a picture of the painting and then he'd burn the painting. Oh, God. So, <laughs> so there's there's actually not a lot of paintings that exist, uh, you know, as a, as a physical you know, uh, objects still. I mean, there's a few. Uh, he gave some to some of his girlfriends and there's a few in existence, but quite a lot of them were destroyed, but there's these little Polaroids of them. Uh, so it, it's curious because, it, you know, for me, and, and this, this is maybe some parallel to how I think about film, for me, that seems like a lot of these things for him were about the process of doing mm -hmm, it. You know, mm -hmm. the, process, the process of playing music, the process of making a painting, and it wasn't really the, you know, the end product or it wasn't the physical thing that was the most important thing. I mean, from, from my films, I always think like, yeah, the film is this object that exists once I'm done. But I always think that, you know, it's about the relationships I form making the film, uh, working on things with, with people I, I love and, and that experience, you know, and so it's, it's a little bit different kind of approach, I think, to thinking about things. I love the way that you talk about the process, because I think that's my addiction. I love the process of bringing everything together. And then once it's performed or brought to life, it's like, all right, next, give me something else. I need something else to feed that monster. Yeah, that's that's what got me about filmmaking. I yeah. think, you know, that I really, you know, I enjoy the process of making. So even you know, when I have no money to make a film, I have, you know, I have a thousand ideas, but I have no money. I'll still work <laughs> on things, you know, because I'm, you know, I, I like doing that. I'm going to try and force myself to take a little break after this film because this was a 10 year journey, but, uh, but it won't be long. I'm sure, I'm sure it'll, you know, I'll start writing a new script or I'll start you know, working on something that I've already started. Did you uncover anything about why we were so attracted to Dark Side of the Moon? Because, I mean, when I was a kid, I mean, 542 weeks on Billboard's charts, and I'm like going, what the heck? Well, Storm always joked that it was the cover. Oh. <laughs> no, he, but uh, he always joked about that. I mean, it's an amazing record. I mean, yeah. I think, uh, you know, as, as I love Tommy and Quadrophenia, uh, but that was probably for me the biggest concept album, you know, mm -hmm. that really s start to finish, you know, and tracking side one and side two on vinyl. I mean, just incredible, you know, track to track to track, you know, and, and I think, you know, some of that experimental stuff that's in it, you know, segueing from each song is, is pretty phenomenal, yeah, yeah. you know. Uh, Alan Parsons being the engineer on that, you know, and the tape loops and all those things, but just the segues between the songs. But, you know, ultimately they're, they're really beautiful lyrical 
atmospheric soundscape soundscapes, you know, and um, that's, you know, my friend told me he just played Dark Side of the Moon to his two twin daughters on <laughs> headphones just just last week, you know, so uh, it continues, you know, you're not the only one, Arrow, it continues. <laughs> you got to come back to this show anytime in the future. The door is always going to be open for you, dude. Great. Thank you very much. Well, you be brilliant today, okay? Great. You too. Thanks, Eric.